And I invite the rest of you who are remaining here uh, to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9 this morning. Romans chapter 9. It's already been a full service, delighting in everything that God is doing in our church family and bringing others to us. Of course, hearing the gospel over and over and over again as well as a great reminder and uh, joy for us um, as believers in Jesus Christ. Today we're going to look at just uh, one half of a paragraph, Romans 9, 19 through 23, and uh, we're going to learn more about uh, the character of God. Uh, If you remember in Romans 9, verse 6, Paul turns toward uh, defending the character of God. Defending the character of God against any accusation that one might bring against him uh, for uh, the failures of the Israelite people. The Israelite people had been rejected by God, and it was no, uh, there was no blame that should be put upon God. Uh, the blame is upon those people. Uh, and uh, from Romans 9, verse 6 and beyond, uh, now in this chapter, we've been learning different things about God. Some of these things have really pushed us. They've been uh, quite deep. Uh, This is one of the deepest, most, I I think, one of the most complex chapters in all of the Bible. As we begin to probe down into uh, the character of God, who He is, uh, we learn more and more about His divine purposes. Some of the, uh, the things that we've learned so far include the fact that God is reliable. He always fulfills His promises. It was never God's intention to save every person out of the Israelite people throughout salvation history, but he desired to save those who would turn to faith in his future provision of a Messiah, Jesus. We then saw that God is righteous. We looked at this two weeks ago. Uh, God is always right, even when uh, he makes choices involving individuals. He's not unjust because uh, God, as the creator, has the right to show mercy to whomever he would show mercy, as it says back in Exodus. He also has the right as creator to harden whomever he wills, as he said back to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 9. Now, when you uh, are introduced to the concept of God's willing and planning in salvation history, it often can bring an objection that we're going to read about in more detail today. Uh, Because God is sovereign over all creation and time, and things work in conformity to to His will, sometimes people object and ask how God um, could possibly judge anyone if all all things are in conformity to His will. And so, Those will be the verses that we'll consider. Paul will bring up that very objection in verse 19, and then he'll answer it in verses 20 through 23. Uh, Before we dig into this, though, uh, let me pause our hearts in a moment of prayer and reflection on God. Let's pray together. Father, back in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, it says this about you. O Lord... God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. 
Lord, as we learn more about you in this Romans passage today, I pray that every person in the room would submit to who you are and what the the text says about you. I pray that you would help me to speak with clarity on what the scriptures say, even as we ponder this illustration of the potter and the clay. And I pray, Lord, that at the end of the, the day, at the end of the sermon, perhaps, we'd be willing to allow you to be the potter and for us to be the clay. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning my sermon is a bit abbreviated, a little shorter than normal because of all the testimonies we've had so far. I've got a two-point sermon. So you know when a preacher only has a two-point sermon, uh, it's going to be shorter. Well, that's what they all say at least. Um, Two points. There's an accusation in verse 19 made against God, and then there's an answer uh, to that accusation in verses 20 through 23. So if you're taking notes, you can just write those two down and then sit back and listen. So we start with the accusation. Look in your Bible at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Here Paul articulates a potential objection to what he's been saying about God, God's freedom and God's righteousness in the previous verses. The objection comes in the form of two questions. Those two questions come together, form one accusation against God. The questions together wonder how God could hold anyone accountable as a moral, morally responsible being since no one can resist the will of God. If God shows mercy to whoever he wills, and if he hardens whomever he wills, then how can he judge anyone? In other words, if everything is determined by God's will, not according to human will or exertion, in advance, how can he hold human beings responsible? That's the accusation. Verse 19. Now, the second point's going to take a little longer. The answer. Verses 20 through 23. Paul will answer this uh, objection, an objector, in two ways. He's going to answer it through giving an illustration Uh, to help us visualize uh, how God can do this and what he's doing in salvation history. And then he's going to give a direct answer. The illustrations in verses 20 and 21, the direct answer is verses 22 and 23. So let's look at that illustration, verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? That's the illustration. Now, most of verses 20 and 21 are about this illustration, the potter and the clay, but he starts out by confronting or calling out this imagined objector. Uh, Paul's done this several times in Romans. You might remember back in Romans 2 and 3. He calls out a guy he, he creates that will rise in objection and really issues some of the objections that he thinks people might have to what he's saying. Here he calls him you. Uh, this guy is called you. Uh, and this objector is uh, really representative of any person who finds problems with what Paul's been saying about God. In this case... Uh, it appears that the person has gone too far in his objections against God. He's crossed the line. Do you remember asking your parents questions about going somewhere or doing something before? And 
in the conversation. They were giving you an answer you didn't like. And so there came a point when you crossed the line. You kept asking and then you, you answered back to them something like, uh, you're being unfair. I'm just piling up all the things I've heard as a parent. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you're so unfair. Or, um, how do you have the right to tell me what to do? Well, in this passage, the objector has gone too far. Yes, if God determines to show mercy entirely according to his own sovereign purposes and choice, then how could he hold anyone account? Uh, responsible. God, you don't know what you're doing, in a sense. Now, Paul's first question injects the two actual positions of the people. One, uh, the man, he's the objector, but the other is creator. He says, uh, he calls the objector, oh man, and then he reminds him that he's arguing with God. And the words answer back make me believe that the objector's gone too far. Paul's going to deal with this objection quite sternly. This, these, these words answering back, I think, demonstrate the rebellious spirit of the person. I'd agree with John Stott, who said, this is not someone asking sincere questions about God. This is someone quarreling with him about what he's done. Again, to use another illustration with your parents, maybe you remember your brother or sister answering back to your parents, and, and you were watching this, you thought, oh boy. That's too far. You know, get the popcorn. This is going to be interesting. So, what does Paul do? He retorts back against this audacious man who is back-talking the creator of the universe. He says, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? After that retort, he gives the illustration of the potter and the clay to help bring more clarity here about God's freedom as the creator. I think the analogy of the clay, by the way, I was thinking this week, is so fitting when we remember that we are but from the ground ourselves. Now I want to make three important points about the illustration of the potter and the clay with you that I hopefully will be helpful to you if you're taking notes. Just three things to consider about the potter and the clay which have been a, of a help to me as I walk through this passage. Uh, first, uh, I just point out the potter clay illustration comes originally from the Old Testament. Uh, this is not something that Paul created uh, in his own. This is something that comes from the Old Testament. Often Paul argues from the Old Testament, his Bible, and he gives grounds for what he believes or grounds for his view of God that comes right from Scripture. And this is no exception. The potter clay illustration, I believe, comes from the book of Isaiah. There is a section in, as well of Jeremiah where you've got the potter and the clay illustration used. But I, I think primarily Isaiah is on his mind. I think that because this, this one question, will what is molded say to its molder, is pretty much a, a quotation from Isaiah 29 and verse 16. Almost agrees wholeheartedly with Isaiah 29 and verse 16. And yet there are several passages in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah uses this analogy to portray God's rights as a creator with his people. You could write down several chapters, Isaiah 29, Isaiah 45, Isaiah 64. In each one of those passages, he uses this uh, analogy to describe God. And the point with it, back in Isaiah, is to emphasize God's right as the creator. 
God's right as the creator. And from my perspective, what Paul does then in, in drawing from this illustration is he is making a principle out of what Isaiah said about God as creator. And the principle is something like this. Uh, as creator, God has creator rights to do with people whatever he wills. He has creator rights. And this is an idea that uh, Jewish theology all through the Old Testament agreed with. Matter of fact, I'm, I'm going to have you turn back to a passage in your Bible. Go back to Job 40 uh, for a second. Job chapter 40. And I just want to show you that it's not just Isaiah and Jeremiah who declare the creator rights of God to do whatever he wills, but uh, there was another man who saw this. You perhaps know the story of the book of Job and how uh, Job was harassed by Satan, and, and yet Job wanted a face-to-face encounter with God. Well, he finally gets that in Job 38 and 39. He meets God. God actually comes to him in a whirlwind. And if you remember in 38 and 39, especially what God is talking to Job about, he's asking him a series of questions about creation. If I remember correctly, I think he asked Job over 70 questions about the, the beings that God has created, and the, the planets and the stars, and, and all of that. And he's asking Job these things, I think, to overwhelm him with who God is. But look in your Bible at Job chapter 40 and verses 1 through 5. It says, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. That's the Lord to Job. Now, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. I think Job gets it, right? When in the presence of God and the whirlwind, Job learns it's not the rights of the creature to respond back to the Creator. Job puts his hand on his mouth as a symbolism of the fact that he's deciding to proceed no further in this conversation with God. He's the Creator. I'm the creature. I'm going to submit and listen. Uh, And so, uh, I invite you then now to go back to Romans, Romans chapter 9. So the first thing I wanted to point out is what Paul's saying about the potter and the clay, this comes from the Old Testament, this comes from a Jewish and Christian view of the Old Testament that would say that God as creator has creator rights to do whatever he wills. But secondly, I'll say this about the potter clay illustration, I'll also say the potter clay illustration displays the foolishness of humans answering back to God. We've We've hit on this a little bit, but here Paul uh, has the finished vessel or pot in Romans 9 asking the potter, why did you make me like this? Um, And the implied answer here is really, uh, or thought is, no no pot would ever say that to the potter. Uh, The point is that we should not question why God does what he does with human beings, including ourselves. God's rights over human beings, I think, can also seen in verse 21, if you're looking in that verse and you look at the verb there, he says, has the potter no right 
And the answer to that question is, of course the potter has right or authority to do whatever he wants with what he's making. That is, unless you want to disagree with Paul, or unless you want to disagree with the Holy Spirit who's inspiring him. In other words, if you disagree with that question, you're disagreeing with God. The potter does have rights to do whatever he wants with the clay. But then third, and a key here, I think for me, in the potter clay illustration, is to understand something else. And Hopefully this is helpful to you. Uh, the, the, the third key for me is to understand that the lump here, from which all the clay comes, the lump of clay, the original materials for the vessels, in my perspective, represents sinful humanity. Sinful humanity. And I think that's important to keep in mind. One of the most common ways that people object to this passage, the potter and clay illustration, it, is to struggle with God only fashioning some vessels for honor. And at the heart of the objection often is the assumption that we're talking about innocent human life or innocent human beings. Instead, the way I understand this illustration, the point of this metaphor, is that all the clay is sinful. It's all polluted. It's like someone injected poison into all of it. That someone, by the way, was Adam. Thanks, Adam. Remember Romans 5. The point then is that God is doing these things uh, in this illustration with sinful humanity. It's a metaphor which uh, we have to be careful not to push too far. But uh, I think the point of it is that God shapes sinful humanity in whatever way he wants. With this illustration. So if the potter wants to do something with any, any of the clay for an honorable use, then uh, we would call that mercy because it's sinful clay. And if the potter rejects any of the rest, then we call that justice, because it's sinful clay. Now, having looked at this illustration in some detail, I want to see where Paul goes next. He gives an additional thought in verses 22 and 23. And for the rest of our time, we'll look at his direct answer in verses 22 and 23. So look there. It says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory? Now, in verses 22 and 23, Paul lays out or offers a foundational condition or assumption upon which his views of God rest. Uh, to take those two verses and to kind of boil it down, he's, he's, he's saying something like this, well, what if this is true? And he never answers it. He, never, he doesn't say, you know, well, what if this is true? Then this would be true. And that's because the point of the question is really to just lay out and stress those foundational commitments and assumptions that Paul has in his view of God. He doesn't need to answer it. At the end of verse 23, you can even just see like a dash. He moves on and doesn't get to the then part. But he really wants you to consider these foundational assumptions. He lays out the foundational condition or assumption, and um, because he's most concerned that you see the divine purposes that stand underneath God's treatment of unbelievers, people like Pharaoh, like we saw two weeks ago. Remember last week, or two weeks ago, we saw in, in Exodus, 
when God told Pharaoh that he could have taken him out well before he, he did, but he was patient with him so that the world would see his power and would learn to fear his name. Remember, God kept showing his power through 10 different plagues. This passage, I think, uh, verses 22 and 23, uh, kind of build off of that illustration of Pharaoh and his life. I, I like how one commentator described it. His name is Doug Moo. He says, in, in, in the case both of Pharaoh and of the vessels of wrath, he said, God withholds his final judgment so that he can more spectacularly display his own glory. Now, more specifically, in, in our two verses in these questions, uh, Paul reveals three purposes that God has for being patient with disobedient, stubborn humanity. He's bearing with them, he's being patient with them, and he gives three purposes. These are very clear in your text. Uh, so that in verse 22, he, he says he's deciding to show his wrath. That's one of the purposes that God has for being patient with unbelievers. God desires to show his wrath um, on vessels of wrath. Now, vessels of wrath, I, I take to mean those people who will experience God's divine wrath and destruction. And I, I want to make this clear. As you read through the Bible, the Bible never apologizes for God demonstrating wrath. Like, I can't find the passage in the Bible where there's some sort of apology for God demonstrating wrath toward people who reject him and his son, Jesus Christ, the Savior. And so in this passage, we see one of the divine purposes for God bearing with Vessels, uh, uh, people uh, fitted for wrath or uh, working their way toward wrath is to show his own wrath. Now, the second purpose is to make known his power. And this, again, is like the situation with Pharaoh where his hardness gave God the opportunity to showcase his power to the whole world through the ten plagues. In our passage, I think the point would be bearing in patience uh, on those who oppose God give him the opportunity to display his power in response to their disobedience. And yet, uh, when you come to the end of this passage in verse 23, you come to the third or the ultimate purpose that God has in showing patience toward disobedient humanity. And I, I want to make much out of this. So God shows patience to unbelievers so that, as verse 24 says, we might know something significant. I'm afraid that's verse 23, but um, look at verse 23 again. It says, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he's prepared before and for glory. And then we're not going to go far into verse 24, but I want to see the first few words. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. The vessels of mercy he identifies as us, believers in Jesus Christ, who are called out by God from both the Jewish and the Gentile people. And so this ultimate purpose of God uh, is that God might demonstrate something to us as vessels of mercy. Now, um, we are, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we are the vessels of mercy who experience God's mercy and grace. And I 
I think we should enjoy that. We should delight in that, in this part of the text. Uh, reminds me of a part of Psalm 23 that's kind of hidden, and sometimes we don't really think too much about it. Uh, but in Psalm 23, the psalmist says, he says, Surely mercy and goodness shall follow me all the days of my life. Don't you love that part of the passage? Shall follow. That word for follow means pursue or chase after. Surely, as believers in Jesus Christ, we can be of the people who say, God's mercy is pursuing and chasing after us. We are the objects of his mercy. Now more specifically in our text, God bears patiently with unbelievers so that we, the objects of his mercy, might know the wealth of God's glory. Okay, so one of the phrases that's been perplexing to me throughout the week, and I've had to really spend some time thinking on, is this phrase, the riches of God's glory. And what does that mean? I think that's the, really the big question at the final part of this text. And uh, The way I understand it is he's saying uh, God delays in, in working with unbelievers and because he wants us to see the riches that are his glory. The riches that are his glory. Now when Paul says this, he likely means that God desires for believers to know God's excellence. How he works and who he is in all the many different ways, full-orbed nature of his character and actions. In other words, the riches of God's glory speaks of the summary of all of his glorious attributes and ways with men and women. Paul uses this phrase, riches of his glory, by the way, often. He uses it in Philippians and Colossians and Ephesians to speak of uh, the glorious inheritance we have in Jesus Christ. But in this passage, regarding that phrase and regarding these riches of God's glory, his significance, Paul says he wants us to know them. And uh, this knowing uh, here, I think we need to be careful with it. God doesn't do all this stuff with unbelievers and work in our world in such a way that we would intellectually know these things, although I think it involves our minds. I think the knowledge here is experiential as well. He wants us to know all about his divine excellence and his significance in our souls as well as our minds. So as we wrap up this passage, I ask you a concluding question. Do you live to know the riches of God's glory Do you live to learn more and more of who God is? This means, I believe, that we will pursue and pursue and pursue God through prayer and through the study of the Word. One of God's divine purposes, actually, I believe, His ultimate purpose in the way He works in salvation history is so that the objects of his mercy, us who believe in Jesus Christ, so that we would know the riches of God's glory. Do you live like this? And I want to leave you with one statement from a preacher I heard this week. He said this. 
He says, it's those who see the glory of God the most who do the most in this world for him. He concluded, he said, see little of God, do little. See much of God and his glory, do much. I pray that as we work through this passage and you consider this ultimate purpose of God, one of your focuses would be as we leave to think God has designed and worked in such a way showing both his wrath, his power, and his mercy so that I might get a full orb view of God. And Lord, help us to grow in this way. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, we're thankful for this illustration of the potter and the clay. Lord, this speaks of your divine rights as creator to do whatever you will with sinful humanity. I pray that we would not be guilty like the imagined objector here, or even like Job in the Old Testament who had to put a hand over his mouth and say, I've said something once, but I'm not going to say something again. Lord, ultimately, at the root of all of this for us is just our willingness to submit to you as the creator God, to allow you to be God. But then also, at the root of all of this is a divine purpose that even in how you work with disobedient, uh, unbelieving humanity, there was uh, a generous, merciful purpose. And that is that we might see the full-orbed glory of who you are. That we would not only come to know and understand and love your, your sacrifice for us by sending your only Son on the cross to die in our place for us. That we would not only st- understand your love, but that would, we would also understand your holiness, and your wrath, that you're completely turned against sin. You cannot be in the presence of sin. You have to turn your righteous anger against sinners. They reject you. And Lord, as we consider your divine purposes throughout humanity, uh, we are able to to see your wrath and your power and to to gather a fuller understanding of your grace, your glory. And so help us as followers of yours, if we know Jesus this week, to pursue you, to get to know you more through your word, through prayer. Rejoice in who you are according to Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.